The Partially Examined Life relies on your support. To find out how to help in ways that are cheap or even free, please visit partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, episode 161, part two on white privilege. We've talked about Peggy McIntosh's Unpacking the Invisible Backpack, Tim Weiss's White Like Me documentary, a little bit about Charles Mills' White Ignorance and Lewis Gordon's Critical Reflections on Three Popular Tropes in the Study of Whiteness, and Lawrence Blum's White Privilege and Mild Critique. We have yet to bring in Charles Yancey's Dear White America or John McWhorter's The Privilege of Checking White Privilege. And I'm sure we'll have all of that and more back here with Lawrence Ware. So I want to say something about the notion that there's sort of a personal project and a policy project involved in looking at one's participation in privilege, however it breaks down. So we can talk about distinctions between passive and active or benefit versus avoidance. But what I've been getting from what Wes had been saying is that there's a psychological aspect to coming to terms or coming to some kind of recognition of your participation and benefit from white privilege. And then there's the, how does this motivate individual action for the sake of public policy? And there's also the third component of recognizing, I think in one of the essays, I don't remember which one, mentions the idea that thinking of racism as an individual's act against another individual, like violence or hate of one individual of another versus recognizing systemic institutional racism. And I want to just sort of speak out from what I'll call the naive individual and say, it strikes me as insofar as we undertake the philosophical enterprise of trying to root out and uncover assumptions and biases, faulty thinking for the sake of getting at truth, I don't see that there's anything fundamentally different about wanting to say, I would like to recognize what unspoken, unexamined assumptions I have about the way that I think with respect to race or class or these other sorts of things. So I, I think that personal project, I think there's a way that we can spin it and talk about it being philosophical as much as psychological. And just in the same way that we talk about examining our own subjectivity from a philosophical perspective, and then there becomes this problematic transition to the ethical or other facing activities, I think you see the same challenge of transitioning from thinking about our participation, our subjectivity in this racial construct, and then moving towards public policy. These things seem very analogous to me, that I think there's some intrinsic value in it, but I think it's all part of the same complex that is challenging. Well, it also sounds like, just to also respond to Wes's question of kind of what good this is, is according to the theory that you were putting forward before Wes, if, if this is all about affording recognition, then once you find white privilege in yourself, then that's supposed to directly lead to you actually granting recognition toward minority folks in a way that you might have thought you were doing before, but you weren't, you weren't doing it enough. So, you know, being hypersensitive about that. No, I, so I think the way it works is you subtract recognition from yourself. The point is that you could talk in the traditional way. So yeah, I think of this as a distributive justice, but it's a transition from the idea of 
increasing something for black people to decreasing something for white people. And what's decreased is one's own status and one's own recognition, one's own self-esteem. That's the equalizing factor. And I think the way it works is that's done through an act of contrition for something for which you are in some sense responsible. And I'm not inferring this, like Macintosh uses that word. You are basically accountable if you benefit from an unjust system you, in a way, have done something unjust for which you are responsible. And the other aspect of this is that the obliviousness is itself oppressive. So she makes that point in her article. So she says, I, after I realized the extent to which men work from a base of unacknowledged privilege, I understood that much of their oppressiveness was unconscious. Then I remembered the frequent charges from women of color that white women whom they encounter are oppressive I began to understand why we are justly seen as oppressive, even when we don't see ourselves that way. I began to count the ways in which I enjoyed unearned skin privilege and have been conditioned into oblivion about its existence. And there's other parts in the article where it's the obliviousness itself that there can be something oppressive to that. And this is the objection. It's a very common objection where the mechanism seems to be that there has to be some sort of guilt for something over which no one has control. Of course, you can't really admit to or be contrite about something over which you have no control because you don't really have any responsibility. You could be sad about it. You could think it's terrible in the same way of the girl who goes to address disparities in healthcare. But I think unless you can invoke some idea of collective guilt or responsibility for things over which you have no control, I don't think the act of contrition is something that's actually appropriate. I don't even think you have the right to be contrite about things for which you're not responsible. And I think without contrition, this idea of leveling social recognition in a way by admitting to one's responsibility, I don't think that part of it is coherent. I think all the, you know, the other positive things I said, I think there's an enormous value to this concept, which is not something I expected to say. But I think this part, this is a real objection because this this whole idea of white people being responsible simply by virtue of their race, it's not in just in this Macintosh article, it's in practically every article. There's a line about that. I'm hesitant to say that white people are responsible by sheer fact that they are white. I'm, I'm not comfortable with saying that, but I do think that white people do have privilege, certainly, by the sheer fact that they're white. And perhaps they have responsibility to work to make the world a more just society in the same way that we all have responsibility to make the world a more just society, regardless of a person's racial demographic. Now, the way in which we do that, I do think that that requires some thought on our part. And that's always going to be the hard part of this is, you know, how do we make this world a more just society? What's clear is that things are unjust. That's clear. I mean, I, and, and I don't think that anyone's going to, you know, I hope that no one's going to be like, yeah, everything's perfectly fine here. Right. I mean, so I, I think that that's the starting point. If we can start from that place that something is wrong and something needs to be done to fix it, then we can kind of move in the same direction. But the mechanism by which we get there is what I don't have the answer for. I mean, if I had that answer, I wouldn't be here with you guys. I'd be chilling with Puff Daddy and Kanye West <laughs> and certainly with Barack Obama and his dad jeans and boot cuts. But anyway, I think that's the hard part. Like, like, how do we rectify that? But 
if we can all agree that there is something wrong, then we can kind of figure out how do we fix what's wrong. And I don't think that we'll be able to fix it here on this podcast. Well, I took part of the point about the language of privilege, and it wouldn't be just for the, the case of white privilege, but any kind of privilege is that a person who has privilege has a super added obligation regarding justice, that because of that privilege, they have the power and also have the responsibility to act to rectify that, that injustice. And that same kind of argument seems to be true, you know, along ethical lines, along lines of class, of all kinds of reasons, not just notion that we're talking about here of white privilege. And, and to me, it seems even, in fact, rolled up in the notion of privilege is a call to responsibility regarding rectifying unjust circumstances that is more your responsibility because of your privilege than it is for everybody else. I don't think it's true that your moral responsibility can change based on whether you're subject to forces beyond your control that benefit you. Well, I think there's two different things here, right? One is whether or not it's actually the case that your moral responsibility has changed or whether it's entailed in the notion of privilege that we talk about it this way. Both Look, those it's a virtuous thing for, for any of us to work to fix what's unjust about society. But I don't think that someone could be more obligated <clears throat> to do that than another. So then there becomes a question is, is there such a thing as having more or less obligation? Does any kind of inequity or fortune imply any kind of obligation upon somebody? This makes me think of Peter Singer versus Jesus. Exactly. So, so Jesus has the parable of, uh, or I don't know if it's a parable or just part of a speech. The woman, she had only one coin to her name and she gave that. And so her gift is greater than all you kings that gave larger amounts, but it was a smaller percentage wise of your wealth. That on the one hand, so like, in other words, it's everybody's responsibility to give no matter what your circumstance, as opposed to well, she didn't actually do that much good. So let's stop being so navel gazing and focusing on her virtue of giving the one coin. Maybe she should have, you know, bought herself a sandwich with that coin. It really is Bill Gates' responsibility. He's the one that actually has power to make a difference. And that's the way I think your responsibility changes with your level of power because you have more power to make change. And so therefore, no, 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 you don't No, the most underprivileged white person, the poor white person is still privileged in the sense of having white privilege it doesn't translate into power to fix the systems of racial injustice. They don't have more power to do that than the average person. Well, because they're members of the group that is bullying. And so like if enough white people in the South or let's just say in a largely racist community. I'm not even saying the South is racist, but imagine there are racist communities. The more members of those communities that realize their privilege and exert pressure on their peers, then the effect might be KKK membership goes down. So it doesn't require being materially wealthy to be in a social position. That's just circumstantial opportunities. The fact that I happen to be a white person around white people and can influence them. And that's the particular way I could help affect racial injustices. That doesn't imply some greater responsibility and some greater power in general to get rid of racial. Is an opportunity a form of power? That's one type of opportunity. There are many different types of opportunities. 
again, aren't there two things being talked about here is whether or not opportunity and power are associated with one another, but the other is does power confer responsibility? Those are two different things. Well, I take West to be saying that, no, power doesn't confer responsibility and stop. No, I wasn't saying that. I, was, I wasn't saying that power doesn't confer responsibility. And in this case, I don't think there really is a lot of material power. We're talking, you know, Bill Gates is materially powerful, maybe in some ways. I'd have to think about that, whether that increases his responsibility to give to the poor and things like that. So that's a separate question. But what doesn't increase your responsibility is the fact that you benefit from an unjust system that's beyond your control. That doesn't increase your responsibility. You implicitly raise the question regarding white privilege is when we talk about people who are unprivileged in lots of different ways, but are also incidentally white, how does their white privilege translate into privilege for them? Because if we look through the list of McIntosh's article, there's a lot of things that certainly would resonate, but there's a lot of things in, in terms of material transformation and injustice that would not translate. The questions of class, for instance, or the questions of education, or the questions of wealth, or the fact that you have an accent that's hard to understand, and you know, stuff like that. Well, yeah. so let me give you my, my experience. Okay. I came over here from Ireland when at the age of nine. I lived in experiences of extreme deprivation that a lot of people couldn't even imagine, including worrying about whether I was going to have something to eat, and worrying about whether I was going to be homeless. And having all sorts of terrible things happen, very traumatic things happen to my family because of that situation, including death. And then ending up at a college with a lot of like genuinely privileged people. And so despite the cultural thing of being an Irish person in the United States and having my ass kicked all the time and being teased because I was poor and not wearing the right clothing, then ending up at a college where I felt on a class level and a cultural level, a lot of the profound feelings of inferiority and like there was no one like me there. And that I basically, I would never, ever again be in a peer group of people who understood me unless I was around poor people. So you went into academia. And it's interesting about that because I get a lot of stuff on the blog about the privileged white person that I am and all this stuff. And people can't imagine because they hear the way they talk on the show. They couldn't imagine that I actually would have come from that background, which to me is one of these pernicious things, this sort of use of this very general idea to sort of draw these assumptions about people that you don't actually know. So the reason why I bring all that up is just because there are a lot of these situations that work relative to race relations are actually related to class and work along intra-racial class lines. That's one factor. And the other is just a matter of public relations. You're never going to produce anything but anger in people like me if you use the word privilege relative to those people and the, those people run out and they vote for Trump and they do all this. So as a matter of public relations and actually being persuasive to people, I don't think it's the best approach to use that word. Although I, again, like I said, I think there are a lot of positive elements to this recognition, this taking into account of social recognition and the profound importance of that. Is your criticism West there amount to saying that, white privilege is spoken to upper-class liberals? Okay, the way I think of it, and this may be unfair, but in me, it produces feelings of resentment towards upper-class people because I see it as a sort of cultural artifact of the upper-class, and it's the way that rich white people or well-to-do white people and professors and, and the upper-class 
really what they're doing is they're telling poor white people that they're privileged. It's really, to me, it's a battle that is between two factions of white people. And it's a way for actually privileged people who sort of have atoned for their privilege by confessing to it to look down on all the people who will never confess because they're too wrapped up in the difficulties, the material difficulties of their daily lives, and they'll never be able to wrap their heads in that enlightened way that the upper class can around the idea that they're privileged. So it creates this automatic stratification and it enables that kind of class condescension. Now, part of this analysis, you know, I'm a traditional democratic socialist. When I, I see these issues of identity creep in and interfere with the project of economic justice for all and all, all those sorts of things, we should be focused on every underprivileged person. So that's part of it. Let me give you some pushback here, though, because I want to first validate what you said. I'm going to hear what you're saying on that. However, I do think that there is room here for us to be intersectional because it need not be only one thing to the exclusion of other things. We can talk about white privilege as we also talk about economic injustice, you know. And so, you know, for the sake of clarity, I'm a democratic socialist as well, part of, you know, Democratic Socialists of America, been a part for a very long time, also an editor on their Democratic Left blog and publications and stuff like that. I mean, so I'm with you there on the democratic socialist part, but I do think it's important for us to be able to be intersectional about these things. And so, for example, a person who is black and impoverished, as the poverty numbers show us, that is disproportionate what's happening to people of color. But so a person who is black and impoverished, they are dealing with the poverty, yes, but they're also dealing with the racism, right? And those two things provide different kinds of social pressures on them, right? And so, for example, you know, I come from a not very great financial background raised by a single mother and all that kind of stuff in inner city Oklahoma, which doesn't sound very rough, but it is pretty rough, those horses out there are gangsters, hell. But anyway, what I experience as being a black person in inner city Oklahoma, even now, is, you know, anytime I'm driving through, I'm pulled over, I can't tell you how many times a year just to check, right? I'm a black man driving a relatively nice car, even from wearing a suit, they're pulling me over just to check, check on whatever, right? And if I say the wrong thing in that instance, it can easily and quickly escalate to a very deadly situation, right? Now, that is something that if I am poor, sure, I can deal with, right? Depending upon the, you know, where I'm living, depending upon what I'm driving, depending upon what I'm wearing. But if I'm a black person, uh, almost anywhere that can happen, regardless of my socioeconomic background, right? And so I think that race provides a different kind of pressure that class provides. And that's not to say that these two things are mutually exclusive, but they are different and worthy of looking at them differently and being able to maneuver the world in such a way where that concern about my race being a reason why I'm going to be pulled over is a function of privilege, right? If I'm a white person who, even if I'm lower socioeconomic status, I don't really have to worry sometimes about certain kinds of things, right? Just the numbers just kind of Tell us about that. And so I do think that there's room for us to be intersectional in our analysis without discounting the very real concerns that people who are white and coming from lower socioeconomic backgrounds have to wrestle with. I agree with all that. I think I was pushing this into the question of political strategy in a way or public relations, but it's about the traditional connotations of the word privilege and its association with something that we don't need and something that we can take away that's sort of a luxury or, and also 
you know, associations with rich people. So it's the repurposing of that word. And yes, if you can wrap your head around a repurposing of that, then all well and good. But the average person is is not going to do that. And they're going to see it as a sort of attempt to minimize the interests of poor white people who are, there's a lot of working class and poor white people in the country or minimize or sort of further this kind of idea that, well, maybe their interests don't really matter all that much because they're complicit in racial injustice, things like that. So that's sort of some of the connotations, whether they're fair or not, that I think are unhelpful. So what is the strategy to acknowledge without prioritizing one pain or one injustice, one oppression over another? You have to make people allies. You have to make them see that their interests intersect, and that it's not a zero-sum game and that they're actually related. I think you're right. I mean, it's important to, if I can bring a little bit of King into this, right? So part of what's in the background here is I remember King writing his letter from a Birmingham jail in response to the letter from the white clergy and called a call for unity. And, and they were saying that what King was doing was fundamentally divisive, right? That what he's doing is he is alienating people who otherwise would be interested in working with him by being too pushy, by being too divisive and things of that nature. And King's argument in response to them, I mean, he had a whole bunch of different things that he said in that piece, but one of the fundamental things that he said is number one, that we are all interconnected, that we are all in this together, that an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, I think is how it kind of goes. The spider web of mutuality. What King is saying there fundamentally is that we are all interconnected. And so it's important for us not to have an either or approach, but a both and approach. And I think that for many people, we are just so accustomed to having this either or approach that it's very difficult for us to change our way of thinking of that both and, right? We both can fight racism, address white privilege, talk about white privilege, and talk about class privilege and things of that nature. And I think that centering the white perspective of saying, well, they're going to be alienated by using this kind of harsh language is a function of privilege. It's important for us to be clear about that and even interrogate the need to worry about how it's going to go across to white folks, because it's also important to understand what gives rise to that level of uncomfortability and difficulty within black communities that makes them feel as though it's important for us to wrestle with these things and be very sometimes overtly confrontational, but and in other times just not as confrontational, but nevertheless, when it comes to the public relations side of it, because I, I do think that it's worth discussing, do we need to use that word privilege and white privilege? I do understand Bloom, for example, when he has difficulty wrapping his mind around, should that be the word that's used? He has some critiques of that. I understand that concern. I understand how individuals may think that that is a divisive thing. And if there's a better way to approach it that still allows for us to talk about the reality of racism, both institutional and interpersonal, if there's a better way to do that, then I'm for that. But until we come up with that better way, it's important for us to not just go the route of class only to the detriment of addressing the reality of race. And however we do that is open for discussion. Yeah. So talking about rhetorical strategy, we're again getting back to what to me seems involves quite a bit of futility that the whole way that these things get dumbed down as they get spread to the wide community is because conveying fine distinctions is not something that is easily done among the mass, the populace. So Blum in his article, for instance, points out, yeah, really, you need to distinguish between the spared injustice privileges and the unjust enrichment privileges. 
So should you feel guilty as a white person because the police don't stop you? Like, well, unless you're like the one guy in the Weiss video who says, yeah, when I was young, I used to be a shoplifter and I was really grateful that I was white. Because uh, then the, uh, the the security guards were distracted by the black people and they wouldn't bother me. Like I loved that. That was crazy. I couldn't believe he said that. Is there a statute of limitations? <laughs> but for the most part, that kind of thing that Macintosh was pointing out, those are spared injustice. So like that's the kind of thing that it feels weird to call that a privilege. Is what a privilege to be spared this injustice? Not being raped as a child is not a privilege. Exactly. Whereas unjust enrichment, like that's the kind of thing that you really kind of should feel guilty about if, you know, there are systematic things that are taking away from communities and giving to you and you are benefiting from that and you have always benefited from that. You know, that's like the being in the mafia family and just like, oh, I'm just, it's not me. It's my family that's doing it. Like, no. Well, I don't know, guys. You're right to not be raped as a child. That's not a privilege. But to be able to live a life where you're not worried about it is. Does that make sense? And you could also live in a community where, I mean, think about being in South Sudan right now, where you could easily be a woman in South Sudan. And if you hadn't been raped, you would be one of the few lucky ones. But I shirk from saying that she's privileged because of that, right? I can understand it being lucky because of that circumstance. I wouldn't call her privileged. (laughs) No, no, I wouldn't call her privileged either, but... I, as a man, like once I get off with you guys, I'm probably going to go to the gym or something like that, right? And so I'm able to go to the gym and not really worry about being sexually assaulted, although there is a threat there, but you know, I don't have to worry about it. So there's things that I can do without having to worry about how that's going to impact me necessarily, right? And so that lack of worry that is a privilege, not the fact that I was not assaulted, but it's how I'm able to kind of maneuver my life that gives me that privilege. That's the subtle, the nuanced difference there. So actually, the reason I brought up that distinction was not to say that one should be called privilege and one should not be called privilege, because mm-hmm. that's not Blum's point either. It's just that, first of all, we do have to recognize these are different kinds of privileges so that they have a different degree of unjustness about them, a different degree of guilt that if guilt should be involved, different degrees of guilt should be involved. But yet, he says, just because you make this distinction, like once I make this distinction, it's natural for us to jump to oh, well, the spare justice things are something we don't have to feel guilty about. We don't have any responsibility to involve. And that's what you were just responding to. Whereas the unjust enrichment ones, obviously we have a responsibility. No, Blum wants to say, we actually still do have a responsibility involved related to both of these. It's just that they're of different degrees. (laughs) And that's the kind of subtlety that is very hard to keep in mind, even as an individual. And once you're explaining it to your friends and they're explaining it to their friends, like, this is going to get degraded. This rhetoric is not simple enough anymore. <laughs> it's not stupid enough anymore to spread like wildfire. So the version that gets out there and gets used, gets weaponized, is always the worst possible version of this. And the way that McWhorter refers to it, just because we haven't brought up that, he sees this talk of white privilege in particular as basically religious talk in the way that Wes was just bordering on. It is a matter of white people virtue signaling to each other. Oh, look how guilty I am. Look how wonderfully self-effacing I am to recognize my whiteness. And it doesn't actually accomplish anything. And you were just saying, of course, law, yeah, you can recognize white privilege, but you should also go out and do stuff. And Blum says that same thing, right? In the point that Wes brought up about, well, you could be actually working to get rid of disparities in healthcare. But Blum's purpose in that is, again, not to say, just go do the practical thing and forget about white privilege, forget about the navel gazing. 
He just wants us to recognize that those are two different things. They're both worthy, he thinks. But in particular, McWhorter is, again, he's writing for the Daily Beast. He's looking at the way people actually use this rhetoric and sees it as actually not accomplishing very much in terms of of real civil rights change. In fact, he thinks that they're not doing the and or it's a distraction. It's something that white people do and talk to each other about to feel better about themselves. And in many cases, to the detriment of actually doing anything. I'm not sure how accurate that is, but that's his view. Also, I'd like to add that, and I'm not going to belabor this point anymore beyond this, but the whole notion of moral responsibility implies that you have control over something that you could have done otherwise. It really does boil down to individual acts. Some of this is sort of an ingenious way to (laughs) resurrect some notion of collective guilt. You know, aren't you morally responsible for benefiting from an unjust system? Doesn't that make you unjust in some sense? The answer to that question is no, it doesn't. That's a pre-ethical notion. Now, could you be responsible for fixing it? Are some people more responsible for fixing it? I mean, I think this gets us into the distinction between virtues and basic moral responsibility. I think, yes, it's virtuous to try to fix these things, but the domain of obligation doesn't really apply here. Come, Seth. What would Levinas say? Oh, gosh. (laughs) We're not doing that. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I ain't thought of Levinas in a while. I guess you just have more confidence in talking about pre-moral versus moral, since I ultimately don't think that that moral logic makes thoroughgoing sense. In other words, since I don't take the notion of moral responsibility really all that seriously anyway, (laughs) then the notion of collective collective (laughs) moral responsibility... It's just, this is what Orwell talks about with nationalism. Historically, this idea that you can categorize people into groups and call them at a group level, good or bad, or call them responsible at a group level, this idea of collective responsibility, it leads to mass violence. It's one of the principal causes of mass violence. So it's very, very dangerous. I think it's... Wait a second. When does the notion of systemic injustice become collective responsibility. The notion that institutions are unjust in the way that they are structured doesn't mean that the people who benefit or who are not hurt by those systems are somehow responsible for it. Macintosh says we are responsible and... You're responsible insofar as being aware of it and then having to take actions to address those changes. It's not the context she uses it in. If you benefit from injustice, you are responsible for that injustice. And also Bloom focus on whiteness can be a powerful force for encouraging white students to recognize their complicity in racial injustice. Complicity doesn't imply moral responsibility? Not in the same way as direct responsibility. When you say responsibility, are you saying responsibility that white people today are responsible for the system as it is now, right? They help to create the system? Or are you saying white people are responsible to try to make a just society? What are we saying here? Something like the former. I mean, those are two different questions. But the idea that if I benefit from an unjust system, I have essentially done an unjust thing. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm there. I'm not with that. It's very explicitly said in a number of these articles. So I like the analogy of the kids in the Sopranos family. Pick your favorite crime drama, whatever. They maybe start out as innocent and they're not guilty just because they're part of that family. But to the extent they realize and understand what's going on, even if they themselves are not committing the horrible acts, the fact that they're standing by benefiting clearly, giving their love to someone who is complicit in that, that makes them complicit. You're saying they can leave the family or turn someone in. How do we leave the family or turn someone in? 
I understand the friction that Wes is pointing to. I get that, that you say like, okay, once you recognize, I mean, there's stages. There's ignorance of being in the system that benefits you in an, let's just call it an unjust way. Then there's when you come to recognition that that system, that you're benefiting from that. The question is, what action do you take? And what you're describing, Wes, is this difficulty or this friction, or even in some sense, you may not have a productive avenue of how to react. And that's where it seems to me that you're expressing this concern about having a moral responsibility when there's really nothing you can do to respond to it, or you think there's nothing you can do to respond to it. Yes? I thought Wes was saying that you couldn't have the moral responsibility, not because you couldn't respond to it, but because you couldn't have chosen any of the material differences from which you're benefiting, which are benefiting you or on which that distinction turns. Maybe that's the same thing as what you're saying, Seth. The actions that would remedy that responsibility or act on it, you don't have available to you. Yeah. And you don't have those actions available to you. And we're not talking about necessarily people who are fully possessed of their adult capabilities and legal rights and rational. I mean, if you're a 12 or a 15 year old and you're living with your family and you suddenly come to realize like, hey, there are unkosher things going on here, you are probably not in a position to meaningfully take action to respond to that. And I get that. But I thought that the example that you give, Seth, sounds a lot like the notion of individual actions. And I thought one of the key things in McIntosh's article and in general, the theme of white privilege had to do with the embeddedness that white people have in being in a society that has historical contingencies in it that they are benefiting from over and above other groups of people and being unaware of them and having a responsibility, especially upon becoming aware of them regarding that injustice and that privilege. And that then fact that it's a moral obligation regarding remedying that. And that's what I take to be Wes's reading of the interpretation of the term. It's a collective responsibility based upon a contingent fact. So maybe bringing in Charles Mills, supposed to be the main reading today that we've barely talked about, might help us a little. That for him, it's not a matter of what actions you are taking. It's more a matter of what beliefs you have. And that's something that can be internal. So one of the things that's often cited as white privilege is, well, it's just your white privilege that you're ignoring the struggles of these underprivileged groups. If you are a member of those groups, you wouldn't have the choice to ignore that or not. And so even if you're, you know, I wasn't aware, again, to use my analogy, that my family was part of the mob or something. Well, maybe you should be a little more curious. Maybe your responsibility (laughs) is to get your head out of your ass. And why are you driving a Lamborghini to high school, buddy? (laughs) Yeah. And that it very much goes with just Mills's picture of what constitutes, it's kind of like he talks about race as race is a social construction, but nevertheless, it's obviously real. Just like money, it's real in that sense. And so in a very real way, just enough people acknowledging these facts about historical impoverishment, historical injustice, 
that might give rise if you ignore those facts to a social Darwinism, like that in itself will change the politics, right? Enough people believe the correct facts and are not driven by their class interest, their race interest to systematic ignorance that he thinks is what has happened, what has obscured our knowledge of past tragedy that we don't want to deal with, of, you know, exactly how bad slavery was and other things like that. He talks about the whitewashing in history books of, oh, yes, slavery was uh, the masters were so nice. So it becomes less a matter of taking direct political action and more a matter of changing the overall social narrative. Yeah, well, and he uses this phrase of the theoretical underpinnings is this, he wants to map an epistemology of ignorance. To enable us to break free of it. Yeah. So that is what we're responsible for. We're responsible for breaking free, for detecting our own ignorance and breaking free. That's what the whole navel gazing, it's not just virtue signaling and it's not about feeling guilty. It's about waking yourself up. Yes, but it's an interesting take on it in which it's directed not just at the question of how do we know, but looking at the mechanisms of our ignorance and sort of really focusing on the ways in which we are prevented from knowing. And he's arguing that it's actually a much richer problem than a simplistic avoidance of error by pursuit of the truth. So the critique he would make of a kind of simple Cartesian point of view is that there's really sort of all this forest of random error around you. And as long as you just follow the thread of certainty, you will guide yourself out of it. And that will be good enough. And so you just stay focused on truth and you will always avoid error. But it seems to me what he's saying is, is that the question of ignorance is much more tied up in our own knowing and that we have to understand the way in which ignorance works, especially in our embedded contingent living, in order to even understand truth, that they go together. Yeah, so what did people think about this whole bringing in Marxist standpoint theory, is what he calls it? You know, to a large extent, you can predict what a group of people is going to believe by looking at their material circumstances and the historical contingencies that that group has been involved in. And to the extent that some members of the group are not going to suffer from that ignorance, he actually says, well, that's because they have a slightly different background and different influences. You know, maybe they had a professor for a parent or something. He doesn't even give us specific examples. They might be lucky, but it's very much a picture of epistemic determinism, which goes with the rhetoric of you only believe that because you're a white male. You only believe that because, you, you know. Well, yeah, because memory is social and the social is our contingency. What it brought to mind for me was the notion of perceptual segregation. It's a concept that was defined by, I forget where he teaches, but he's a law professor. His name is Russell K. Robinson. And what it is, is the tendency of two groups that occupy different social positions to draw very different kind of conclusions about cases of possible discrimination. And so what that kind of let me know is that what that does, it just explains why people come to these radically different conclusions 
and why one group of individuals might be motivated to say, oh, well, you're saying that just because you're white or you're saying that because of white privilege or something along those lines, which I think is inherently problematic because if you're trying to engage in bridge building and trying to build a coalition that's going to fundamentally kind of undermine what it is you're trying to ultimately try to do as far as your goal. But nevertheless, that's what came to mind as I was reading that because people from two different backgrounds really do see the world vastly differently. Like my lived experience is going to be very different than someone else's lived experience if they come from a very different background, right? And so both of us looking at the exact same external stimuli will come to radically different conclusions based upon our lived experience and how our lived experience colors what it is that we're seeing, what we're experiencing. And at the end of the Tim White documentary, he even makes fun of We've said on this podcast, or Wes has said at least, pretty much arguing against Charles Mills' claim that kind of we think what we think because of the group that we belong to, that no, it's much more individuals. And Tim White says in a very mocking way at the end of his documentary, like, it's not because I'm white, I'm just, it's because I'm Tim. That's why I believe this. Like that, that's what white people do, he says, he being white, of course, is that they revert to the individual and they can't get it in their heads that they're kind of just programmed because of, this is not what he says program because of their group. And I think this is one of the sort of central points of contention that maybe we would have against Tim here. Wes, are you going to take the bait? (laughs) I wasn't going to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, ultimately, there has to be a possibility of, I mean, I think law made this point. Sure, people's circumstances will have a big role in affecting what they believe, but hopefully people develop some reason, responsiveness, and ability to reflect and especially sort things out through dialogues with each other. We have to think of that sort of ability to transcend those causal factors, at least, you know, in some cases, in ideal cases, or to some extent, let's say. So if you're in a dialogue with someone and you try to reduce what they're saying to those causal circumstances, oh, you're white or you're this or you're that, that's the end of it. You're done talking. What you're implying is, well, we each come from these different circumstances and our discourses are generated by those circumstances and they're radically incommensurable. If we can't be reason responsive, then we can't join the discourses and come to agreement and sort through them. So that's the problem with that sort of ad hominem approach where you start attacking people for their identity when you're having those conversations. That is something that I constantly fight against on my college campus. You know, so We've had incidents of racial things that have happened on campus, and typically what many of my black students want to do is they want to oftentimes go directly into this person is a bad person, this person is wrong, this person is that, and if you disagree with them, and then you know you are you succumb to white privilege or you are you know drinking the white Kool Aid or whatever it is, right? Although white Kool Aid sounds horrible, but anyway, and so <laughs> the idea though is that nevertheless. It's important for us to understand that if there's a case of someone who's just doing something out of pure ignorance, right? They just don't know that what they're doing is racially problematic. Instead of shouting that person down, let's educate this person. Let's kind of, and the problem with this, and I, I know what the criticisms are going to be. The problem with this is that it oftentimes falls on people of color to take that responsibility to educate white folks about these things. But I mean, just in a very pragmatic sense, I mean, oftentimes it's unfortunate, it may not be fair, but oftentimes that's what needs to happen if we want to kind of build bridges. And so, you know, for many people of color, there's kind of a a little bit of frustration with having to always kind of go over these things over and over and over again and have the same kinds of conversations. And it seems like people just do not want to hear what it is that we have to say. And that is a source of frustration, even for me, just, you know, on on a daily basis, even though this is what I do for a living. 
And so I do think that it's important for us to be mindful of our responsibility to build bridges when possible and resorting to those things that Wes has kind of talked about where, you know, you just kind of discount someone or you discount an entire group of people just in a very ad hominem way and in, in doing the logical fallacy of hasty generalization. That is a problem as well. I do think that there is some middle ground here for us to kind of figure out how to best build this just equitable society, which I think is what we all want to do. We just may have some disagreements about what mechanism to use to get us there. Well, I have to think that Mills would agree with both of you that people can be convinced or else he would not be communicating himself. And <laughs> he never say fact, nothing, of ever. course. <laughs> Right. Either he's got to believe that the epistemic determinism is kind of what happens when you are going on default and are asleep before you are, you know, given the racial, the white privilege awakening or whatever you want. <laughs> or more likely, as a determinist should be, you know, this is sort of in line with other determinism versus free will sort of things is, well, the fact that you are having this conversation and adhering to these, you know, actually listening to each other, that in itself is providing an extra cause to what you believe. So isn't that nice that in fact you can actually be convinced of something that's part of the the determinism process it's not just that you are born into a culture and they inculcated you it's of course that can evolve over time that's part of the causal process mark is a compatibilist but that's just cuz you're an academic you're just an academic that engages in those sort of discussions that's the only reason <laughs> why you're so open minded <laughs> if you were like me who's never had a conversation, you would not feel like that. <laughs> so Mills is explicitly anti-relativist. He comes out on page four. And actually, from what I read, that's pretty typical of social epistemology. They're not relativists. Why would you think he's a relativist? Could you say a little more? Well, you know, we were pointing to that as one of the possible implications. The contextualists and people who talk about something that sounds or smells like social constructivism often either are explicitly relativists or get accused of being relativists. He links up Kuhn and Firebrand and company like that. Foucault. And, and some of whom are, I think, relativists and some of whom, like Kuhn, I don't know that he would have agreed about that. Term. Right. But nonetheless, that post-structuralist social construction thread is often weighed down with charges of relativism. Rorty is a perfect example, right? And so that's why Mills is taking pains to explain that he's not being a relativist. In fact, he's wanting to habilitate a theory about context and embeddedness that is pointing away towards truth, towards learning about a kind of genealogy, which is associated with that social epistemology that gets you to the truth of what things are that would get you also to a better understanding of how things ought to be. It's all about truth, man. Yeah, certainly if you're going to write about ignorance, that kind of implies <laughs> there's something that you're objectively ignorant of. It's not the phrase white ignorance implies the possibility of a contrasting knowledge, a contrast that would be lost if all claims to truth were equally spurious. So nice. He's, you know, he's responding to some of the more radical positions in epistemology that are attempting to go beyond the individualist framework, but not doing it in ways that he likes because they are, they do seem essentially relativistic. He has a nice uh, pithy phrase at the end of this section in the middle, talking about the category of savages and savagery. And he says, in all these cases, the concept is driving the perception with whites a prioristically. I didn't like his use of that word. That was kind of a weird word. <laughs> The, the concept is driving the perception with whites a prioristically intent on denying what is before them. So 
If Kant famously said that perceptions without concepts are blind, then here it is, the blindness of the concept itself that is blocking the vision. And that to me was a very pithy way of talking about what he means by the problem of context. Yeah, the idea here is that to the basic cognitive categories, you know, that we associate with Kant, like substance and causality, the sorts of basic universal framework that's supposed to shape and construct our experience, we can add social categories to that. Exactly. We could make a Kantian table, but add all sorts of social things to it, not just abstract logical categories. And then there'd be a question of transcending them, or whether you could. Antinomies. Hmm. When he actually in this article got around to specific examples of the kinds of claims that have been obscured, like past traumas of war, somewhere he says that, you know, nobody remembers the Armenians. Yeah. Right. I, so I forgot the Armenians, <laughs> right? In the, just be, in, in other words, nobody the, remembers the, the them, including to, you. <laughs> the winner gets to rewrite history. And in Armenia, there was a terrible. Not even when Hitler creates a famous quote about them, do, do they get remembered? It's so there's, yeah, there's a terrible genocide in Armenia. And sort of because it was a successful genocide, historical records of there, you know, in the area did not acknowledge it. You kind of had to leave the country in order to learn about it all. And so that was much more real and reasonable than when he's just talking in general about the social aspect of epistemology. He's got to quote a couple pages into the article. Though mainstream philosophy and analytic epistemology continues to develop in splendid isolation for many decades, a W.V. Quine's naturalizing of epistemology would initiate a sequence of events with unsuspectedly subversive long-term theoretical repercussions for the field. If articulating the norms for ideal cognition required taking into account in some way the practices of actual cognition, if the prescriptive needed to pay attention in some way to the descriptive, then on what principal basis could cognitive realities of a supra-individual kind continue to be excluded from the ambit of epistemology? For it then meant that the cognitive agent needed to be located in her specificity as a member of certain social groups within a given social milieu in a society of a particular time period. Whatever Quine's own sympathies or lack thereof, his work had opened a Pandora's box. This is an arrow pointing at the ultimate theoretical underpinning, why we might have this white privilege that we whites, it's very hard for us to acknowledge. It's because of this social epistemology. It's because perhaps in virtue of just like men will not acknowledge male supremacy in the way that certain feminist authors would like them to, the explanation for why they will not admit that why they are so wrong comes out of this tradition of talking about social epistemology through feminism. Yeah. And if we were to think about it, some of the categories, some of our social categories will sound kind of logical, like same and other. So he gives the example of European self-conception as sort of the center of the world and their own sort of self-creating unified entity. And then everything else being other and less than and not even rising to the level completely of the human. So you get the savage as part of that. So some of that, I'm not even sure you can call that cultural exactly because it's a very basic function in human group psychology, right? The sort of in-group, out-group. Those are the kinds of categories we're talking about that'll shape our experience of the world and really create a lens through which we view things, alter our perceptions, as Mills says. And he talks about people living among the Indians and never really knowing them, of seeing their systems of agriculture and seeing their systems of government 
but not seeing them and seeing only savages. You know, you have that lens on where all this stuff is going on around you, all this evidence of a certain kind of culture, and all you see is the savage. Yeah, I found that whole section really interesting, in part because I found myself wanting to contrast the discussion of the savage, which was categorizing people as being other than people, it seemed to me, with barbarians, which the root of that word was people who you don't understand how they speak. And it seemed to me that there was an important distinction there, that barbarians were distinct in a way that was still human in those cultures, as opposed to labeling a group as savages was making them more profoundly other. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a good point. What's the difference between the way the Greeks saw barbarians and the way Europeans looked at Native Americans? Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, and so it's a distinction that you would say, well, you know, the Romans would say the barbarians are at the gate, and what they mean are the Germans are at the gate, right? And that ultimately there's ends up being a lot of different kinds of interactions between those groups that seems to be political and tribal, but categorizing people in terms of savages and versus not savages, civilized versus savages, seems to be a completely different order of categorizing in which you actually annihilate the humanity of the people that you're calling savages. You're saying that they are categorically not human beings. So it's a deeply different context. Seth, was there anything, what else was bugging you about this? <laughs> Seth. Well, I can't help get over the idea that there's somehow a notion of a zero-sum game that underlies this. Like, this is a phrase that means anything in this context. Okay, so Jews have this thing where we like to complain. And <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> you gotta be careful, man. <laughs> I mean, I guess you're Jewish, you well, can do that, so. Yeah, no, well, hey, this is the thing, right? I'm a representative of my race. Isn't that the, uh, I share the same burden, right? sir. I share the same burden. Yeah, yeah, no, I get, well, yeah, I don't know that it's fair or equal, but whatever. The point is, it's like, say, somebody says, you know, how are you doing? The old Jew says to the other old Jew, how are you doing? The other old Jew says, oh, my knee, it's killing me. And the one who asked the question says, your knee, my back, my back is killing me. It becomes this competition of pain, right? And so when I think about this idea that there are multiple vertices of oppression based around race, based around class, gender, in a kind of optimistic way, all of those things are now being put on display by the current political climate, right? Every single way in which every single marginalized group can be oppressed is pretty much being put on display in either the federal or state government houses all over the country. So if you want to know what are all the ways in which people's either conscious choice or biological determinant identity can be put under scrutiny and put under control of the state, now you're getting a chance to see it. But the idea that these things are somehow in competition with each other strikes me as what's really part of the problem here is like the inability of white people to acknowledge the oppression of black people because they have experienced some kind of oppression of their own is in a sense, maybe I'm giving in to Wes on this one, is it would somehow diminish their own experience or somehow diminish their own moral authority with respect to that, as if there can be only one canonical and authoritative way of being oppressed. 
And if the call to political action here is anything, it's not to be divided by the way in which race, class, gender identify you and put you somehow opposed to this white paradigm, which, by the way, was the theme of all of these things that we didn't end up actually, I think, talking about all that much. But is to unify with those people and be joined by the sense in which you're alienated by all of these things. And that seems to me to be the primary diagnosis of the sickness of our country right now. And this goes back to the Rorty episode a couple months back, this notion that there was at a time, or at least maybe he's idealizing it, it probably was never this, I'm sure it was never this naively clean, but there was a time in which people who were victimized by the system did not identify that victimization, did not attribute that victimization to other individuals who were also victimized. They were able to say that it was systemic and they were able to identify with other people who were part of that victimization. Part of the lesson we learned tonight in looking at these documentaries and and reading these essays and all that is that, well, in reality, that's an idealized past. So Rorty is probably idealizing a white perspective of what the left was actually all about back then. But the reality of the situation is the call to action here is to recognize that when injustice is systemic, the response to that is not to turn and compare the injustice done to you to the injustice done to others or to attribute the injustice done to you to other people or even individuals, but to look to the system and to find ways to respond to that. No, that's good. I think that's, that's very well said. What came to mind for me as you were talking was Highlander. You guys see a Highlander? Oh, yeah. There can be only the one. movie? Yeah, the movie. Right? And in Highlander, they're going around chopping off one another's heads, trying to one-up one another. And I think that what you said there, Seth, is very important, that it's important for us to see, as King said, you know, our web of mutuality, that we are all in this together, that one person's suffering is my suffering as well. Now, for King, that's going to be a moral responsibility, but he's coming out of a Christian kind of framework. You divorce that from a Christian framework, you know, we can talk about why one may have some responsibility or maybe they don't have a responsibility. But nevertheless, I think that our shared destinies as human beings and as Americans should cause us to reflect upon, is this the kind of world that we want to live in, a world that is this divided, that has these levels of inequality based upon race, based upon class and things, based upon gender, sexual orientation and whatnot, ableism. For me, what Seth said really kind of rings true that I don't look at the suffering of other individuals and say, well, because you are white, I don't care about you because I have my own suffering to worry about. And so let me focus only upon black people who are suffering under the weight of racism or black folks who are suffering under the the intersectional weight of racism and, and class oppression. I don't have time to care about you, white person, because you are white. Of course, that's inherently problematic. And I would argue that's morally insufficient. Uh, there's something morally wrong with that approach. And so I think that it's important for us to be intersectional and to be empathetic. And whether we want to say that's a responsibility or not, I still think that there is something admirable about that if we can get there. But of course, we're still, many of us are still kind of stuck in this either or perspective and still not quite able to wrap our minds around that both and. 
So, Law, you had us read the George Yancey editorial, given you said that he is your mentor. Well, I mean, I didn't say y'all got to read it. I just said it, <laughs> <laughs> I said it, it'd be, it might be interesting. Well, we, we read it. It's not one of his academic pieces. I looked at one of his academic pieces, the, the one that's in the same book as one of the other pieces that we read. And uh, it was even more over the top than this letter is. <laughs> so, the, so the letter on the one hand, this Dear White America... On the one hand, it seems like it's acknowledge your complicity, acknowledge it, white people, come on. But on the other hand, he's also saying, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. And I want you to listen with love. He's delivering it in a literary enough way. So Yancey is an interesting dude, man. Yancey, you've got to hear him give a talk in person if you can. Like, I mean, he has a foul mouth, man. I mean, he cusses up a storm <laughs> when he gives talks, man. Like, really, like, I'm talking about fuck shit, like, around university presidents and shit. Like, I mean, it is crazy how he talks. I don't, you know, like, when you're on his level, you can get away with that kind of shit. Like, you know, I, I get uncomfortable talking on podcasts and cussing. <laughs> but anyway. We have an explicit rating. Law. We don't. <laughs> oh, I know you don't. <laughs> That's our privilege. That's exactly, and I ain't got that privilege, you know. But, but, but Yancey, uh, Yancey's a really interesting guy because he comes from this place where he doesn't want to cause guilt. He, he genuinely doesn't want to cause guilt. That's not something that he wants to do. But he does have a very confrontational, pugilistic kind of approach to his writing that reminds me a great deal. Oh, what was that new atheist guy who passed away? Uh, Christopher Hitchens. Reminds me a little bit of Christopher Hitchens, but, but only if you were talking about race as opposed to talking about theology or talking about God. Right? He has kind of a very kind of confrontational kind of approach where he really throws things in his face. And what happened here with this piece, and those of you who are out there, billions of listeners, if you ever write a piece that's like for public consumption, the stuff that happens in the comment section can be vicious. It can be really, really vicious. I, I mean, I remember oftentimes I would get nervous about like reading comment sections, even under PEL, because I just got nervous. I just didn't know what people were going to say. And so when you're writing out in the world and you're writing about race and racism, as I do quite frequently, man, the stuff that you get is crazy. I've gotten death threats. I've gotten crazy, crazy things. And so this is kind of just him talking to people coming out of that experience, out of having had very difficult comments underneath pieces that he's written and things of that nature. That's, that's where this comes from. And this is written as kind of a letter, if you will, where he's kind of in a James Baldwin kind of way where he's centering white people and he's kind of talking to them directly about the things that he's written about and the kind of comments that he's gotten on pieces that he's written. I'm just looking for an appropriate quote here. If you are white and you're reading this letter, I ask that you don't run to seek shelter from your own racism. Don't hide from your responsibility. Rather, begin right now to practice being vulnerable. Being neither a good white person nor a liberal white person will get you off the proverbial hook. I consider myself to be a decent human being, yet I'm sexist. Take another breath. I ask you that you try to be unsutured. If that term brings to mind a state of pain, open flesh, it is meant to do so. After all, it is painful to let go of your white innocence. There are a lot of scare quotes in here. To use this letter as a mirror, one that refuses to show you what you want to see, one that demands that you look at the lies that you tell yourself so that you don't feel the weight of responsibility for those who live under the yoke of whiteness, your whiteness. Yeah. Like, damn, man. <laughs> so what do we think about this as a piece of, of rhetoric? Is this effective? It sort of works. I think there's a fine line between 
I want you to look within yourself and really figure out truth and admit that this is the truth. God damn it. This is, I know the truth and I'm telling you it. Admit it. Make your surrender. Like there's a fine line between those two things. T- to be honest, I don't even know if this is really written to white people. It feels like it's addressed to white America, but it's actually written for a black audience. Does that make sense? That's kind of mm-hmm. how it feels. That's how the rhetoric comes off because I can imagine someone who already agrees with him reading this, but yeah, that's right. Damn it. They do need to do that. Right. And then not really be at all convincing to a white person who reads this. I just don't think that this is going to be very convincing in that way. What you're describing is like when you see a movie and the guy who's getting bullied goes, tells the bully off. It's not for the bully, right? <laughs> yeah. It's for us. Yes. Yeah, for yeah, us. Who's yeah. watching. Yeah. It reminds me of, uh, I was about to say, coming to America, not coming to America. It reminds me of uh, that great civil rights film. <laughs> the, great, the Prince Hakeem, absolutely, yes. Um, no, it, it reminds me of Back to the Future. That other great civil rights Wait, film. Wait, why, why doesn't it? Why? Oh, no, uh, you, uh, what you said about um, the bully. The bully. Uh, no, not the piece. The piece doesn't bring to mind Marty, 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 Marty. Yeah, when I was reading that Your Whiteness, I thought of Marty. <laughs> Oh, we forgot about the the best part of the Tim Weiss documentary where he he's trying to counter people who say, oh, now that Obama's been president, you know, racism is over. Racism is not a problem where he cites a survey from 1963 where still like the majority of white people asked were like, yeah, it's not really a big problem. Black kids have just as good uh, educational opportunities as white kids. Like, yeah, 66 percent of whites said that whites and minorities were treated equally in 1963. Right. And, and I remember that scene of the woman who was like, the Negros, they got just as many rights as us, as us if they work hard, you know? And so what came to mind, that did make me feel guilty. And I, well, no, I don't want you to feel guilty. <laughs> and yes, I can say nigra. I am a black person. Just in case anyone who's listening doesn't know that I'm a black person, I can say nigra anyway. But what that brought to mind for me was white ignorance as I was rewatching that today, getting ready for this discussion, right? The whole white ignorance part, right? The, the fact that we have perceptual segregation, that we have radically different experiences of this country based upon where you stand according to race. And even further, the fact that there are many white people who do not know things like what happened in Rosewood, Florida, the race riot that, well, it's not even a race riot, it's a race massacre. Many of my students don't know what happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where a huge number of African-Americans were killed in, we call it a race riot, but it was a race massacre. And so people just don't know about the pockets of mass racialized violence that happened in our backyard, in our country. People just don't know that. They're just completely unaware of it. And so being a black person and knowing that history and it being constantly told to you and, and knowing the fact that my, you know, one of my uncles, my great uncles passed away, was killed, uh, was lynched, you know, in racialized violence, right? That colors the way that I view the world. And so I'm not surprised at all that people have radically different experiences of this country because for me, as a black man, I'm constantly aware of that history. Whereas many people are just, they're able to not be aware of it. They're able to live in a world where that doesn't color how they view the world and how they view American history and how they view themselves as Americans and how they view interactions with, with people of different races. And so I think it's worth wrestling with. And I do think that's a function of privilege. Any other closing thoughts? My closing would be is that I didn't really know what to expect or think about 
the readings themselves. I didn't have much of an opinion either way, but I found them all provocative and interesting to think about. And so it was a set of readings that we've done that have both seemed topical and engaging and provocative and well worth thinking about. And so I'd encourage people to go watch that documentary and and read the readings we did. They're not hard. They're interesting and they're provocative and worth making sense of and thinking through. I thought the podcast that we had tonight is testimony to that. And probably whatever your view is, one of the readings is going to say it in a way better than you thought of it, unless you're just an asshole social Darwinist, in which case, no, you are not represented. <laughs> how many How many of them listen to our podcast? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's the racist dem- demographic. So I have a, like a, I just, I have this thing about guilt and I don't like guilty people. I don't trust them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think they're good allies in, in, in anything. I actually agree with you. Yeah. I have just a visceral reaction to it. And to the extent that I associated this concept in my mind with guilt, I mean, I had always had very negative feelings about it and just the way it's used in the popular culture and just the, you know, sanctimony of some of the left, the way it's deployed, it's enraging. But like Mark said, that's the way it's deployed in the popular culture. And that's not the same thing as the concept in general. So I will say I come away a lot more sympathetic, even to the use of the phrase white privilege, and to the idea of acknowledging the importance of the factor of social recognition and also other subtle forms of discrimination that many people just don't want to acknowledge or or look at. They just want to deny, like that woman from the 60s. They just want to deny they exist. You know, she was doing it with a lot more obvious phenomena. So I think that's very valuable and that's very important, but to the extent it becomes associated with the idea of collective guilt or collective responsibility, I think it can become toxic. I think it can veer into territory, the territory of what Orwell called nationalism, which he he's using the term broadly. So that it can veer into territory where it becomes a sort of status fight between different groups who want to assert their superiority over each other, including moral superiority. When it becomes a bludgeon for people who want to assert their moral superiority, and I think sometimes it's used that way on campus and elsewhere, then I think it it becomes not so much a force for good. I do want to say real quickly that if people are interested in learning more, I mean, there's the documentary 13th that was directed by Ava DuVernay that's on Netflix. There is a really good documentary. I had to watch all the movies for the Oscars because I had to do, I was, you know, commissioned to write some few pieces, a few pieces on them. The documentary, I am not your Negro that talks about the life of James Baldwin is a really, really good piece. And then there's a few books. There's a book called stamped from the beginning as an intellectual history of race in America. A really interesting book. It won the National Book Award uh, 2016. It's a really, really good book. Uh, and then there's also a book by a friend of mine that's called uh, How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America that talks about all these kinds of ideas from interesting perspectives. One, you know, one of them is a historical perspective. One of them is kind of through the lived experience of individuals. But I do think that it's worth really seeking out that education and, and learning about these things and taking it seriously and really trying to cultivate within yourself empathy for the lived experience of other individuals, people who are different from you. Well, acknowledging all that, I just want to add one more quote from Mick Warder, since we've not quoted him very much here. He's, he's the black linguist that writes about these things. The white privilege 101 course 
seems almost designed to turn black people's minds from what political activism actually entails. For example, it's a safe bet that most black people are more interested in there being adequate public transportation from their neighborhoods to where they need to get to work than that white people attend encounter group sessions where they learn how lucky they are to have cars. It's a safe (laughs) bet that most black people are more interested in whether their kids learn anything at their school than whether white people are reminded that their kids probably go to a better school. Given that there's no evidence that white privilege sessions are a necessary first step to change, why shunt energy from genuine activism into, I'm sorry, a kind of performance art? So I don't know what the rest of you thought of that, but I found that this article a nice compliment to the rest of what we wrote. Let's say that. <laughs> he's, you he's just saying, opened up a whole new can of worms. <laughs> you really did, actually? I'm trying to end this. You're trying this to... all the time. <laughs> Are you trying to get me to go into a so go for this? another. Let's go for a fourth hour. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, like this the... is Mark's thing. Everybody give the closings, and then I'm going to pull something out of my you're, ass. Though. You're ending well, with that? then, Seth, you haven't given your closing yet. I so my, you can what listen. I did earlier was my closing. Okay. Hey, let's end, let's end on this. <laughs> Prince is overrated. Like, really? Like, that's how you want to end? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Lawrence Ware. I hope you get a lot more speaking uh, Thanks, man. It was always, it's always a pleasure to uh, talk to you guys. Yes. Good to hear your yeah, voice. Thanks, thanks for coming thanks on. Thanks for coming on, For our closing song today, I'm going to feature Narada Michael Walden. You may not recognize the name, but you've definitely heard some of the albums he's produced. One of the most amazing guests I've had on the Nakedly Examined Music podcast. You can hear him on Nakedly Examined Music number 16. Check it out at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. This song is called Power off of his Thunder 2013 album. All right, next time, uh, it's going to be a surprise. We'll make next time's topic a surprise. I'm sure people have comments on this. They want to go to our Facebook group. They want to go to partiallyexaminedlife.com and comment right on the blog. We even have a Reddit, a subreddit that is devoted to us. We have a LinkedIn group. I'm sure it's hopping there. People are discussing <laughs> us lit. all over the place. Probably there. All right, good night, everyone. Good night. Good night. Peace. and